Hello and welcome to Rewind Reviews. This week we are taking a look at the film Groundhog Day. Um, arguably too appropriate, considering <laughs> most of us are currently trapped in our homes, living it. <laughs> Every day is February the 2nd for us right now. Um, but other than that, um, it's a film I personally described as having the most having possibly the most perfect script ever written like it's it's a it's a perfect screenplay um chris was was determined he'd find something wrong with the movie to try and uproot that um having rewatched it did i um, say that <laughs> i don't remember saying that do you did you not no yeah you yeah it's been for those listening it's been a we we, we got so far ahead we get well, allowed ourselves to take a couple of weeks off but yeah you did because i said it was basically a perfect screenplay and you were like uh I reckon I could find something <laughs> wrong with it. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember saying. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, you know, I, I, I stand by it. Um, for those who don't know, what this is obviously hello, welcome to Rewind Reviews. We're reviewing old movies from our sort of connection to our to our past. We don't do that every week. We'll say what the podcast is, but we probably should do it more than we do. So yes, this week we're taking a look at Groundhog Day. Um, we usually start with like um, history with the film. So what's your sort of history with this film, Chris? Uh, you, I'm pretty sure you were like, you got to watch Groundhog Day, <laughs> right? Uh, and then I remember watching it. Uh, I remember watching it for a few years ago and enjoying it. Um, and then I think I, I think I've re, I think this was my like fourth view. I think it is a film I then went back to at least once or twice. Um, uh, to watch again. So yeah, I just kind of got. Uh, oh, I'm gonna watch Groundhog Day. Sort of feeling like all saw it like on on Sky or whatever. And yeah, so I watched it very late. I it must have. I don't know for sure. Uh, but I don't think even like it was something I watched on your recommendation at university or anything like that. I think it was. Um, it was years later. So I think. I think I would have only watched it for the first time in kind of the last two or three years oh wow that oh, wow that yeah. is yeah okay well the thing with groundhog day from my perspective is that my, my first interaction with it was not to watch the entire film what happened was it was um it was back in the day when i think it was oh no it, was, it must have been before channel five based on my age i would have only been about i'd had to have been somewhere between sort of like eight and eleven when i first saw this film because I was still living in Ireland, and we were at my grandparents' house, and I got the wrong impression of this movie, because it felt like a horror movie to me, <laughs> and for years I thought this was a horror film, and I, I, I kid you not, because I only caught a chunk of it when I first saw any of it. So the movie had already started when my granddad like flicked through the channels and sort of stopped on that aimlessly. And then he started, I don't know, talking to my dad, reading the newspaper, he wasn't really paying attention, he'd given up. But I was still in the room... And I started watching, because it was just on the tally. There it is. And it's this movie about this man, and it might have been that middle section of the movie where he's really sad about it, that I saw. Yeah. You know, when he really spirals. Um, (laughs) And, like, I was like, oh my god, this is horrible. This guy is just stuck in this one different... That sounds like the worst scenario. It just... It played like a horror movie when I just saw that segment. And then I was either sent to bed, or it was changed, or whatever. I was Obviously, I was quite young, so, like... It stuck in my brain though, and for years I, I was like, "Oh, that was that movie I didn't see all of, where it was like it was, you know, it was kind of like a horror film about this guy trapped for eternity in a day." Um, and then years later, I would say early teens, so like thirteen, fourteen, maybe, 
um, I, I either dug it out or I came across it on television or whatever. He watched it until the whole thing and uh, immediately fell in love with this extraordinarily well-written, funny, uh, brilliantly acted um, sort of romantic comedy uh, from Harold Ramis, who obviously I had no idea who Harold Ramis was at the time. Even being a Ghostbusters fan, I had no idea who Harold Ramis was at the time. Um, and it, yeah, it just it really stuck out to me. And I never really was able to put my finger on why until I got a bit more academic about it in later years and I read the book. I think it's just called How to Write Groundhog Day. Um, and it's from the writer of Groundhog Day. <laughs> so the guy who, yeah, Danny Rubin, who wrote this movie, or at least the initial draft before he worked on it with um, uh, Harold Ramis, he wrote a book called How to Write Groundhog Day. And I um, and I read that. I actually reread it this last week um, in prep for this. Uh, it's a really good book, actually. I do recommend it. Um, it's only like 300 pages, and a lot of it is the script. Uh, with his notes so it's it's not a it's not a long read and it's uh it's really worth it in my opinion it's a really good book he's a very smart man and he really knows what works about it and what doesn't and well how it changed we'll come back to that but basically his version of the script was very it was quite different to what it became um in several very key ways um and i want to talk to you about those as, as we get into this later but yeah um and I, and I started reading this book and was just like it really helped me understand what's so amazing about this film and it's the way that it its arc isn't really a plot in the traditional sense. This film's arc is purely a character arc. Purely. There isn't plot because there can't be plot because there's no progression. <laughs> he gets stuck in this time loop and then it is all about how this character changes. All. Every bit of it. And yet it's just as engaging as any other, you know, plot or MacGuffin heavy movie. And the way they tie his arc to the romantic story and have them develop alongside each other as well is just really perfect. So yeah, I've, over the years I've just come to basically love this film. Uh, I, I do genuinely think it's a bit of a masterpiece. Um, did they? Did they acknowledge? Does he acknowledge in that book? Because I'm, I'm, I'm almost surprised by the boldness of the title because I watched a um, a kind of a small making of thing on YouTube, mm-hmm. and it said that the original script started with the loop already happening. Yes. Oh, well, we're going to get. Into I suppose how, yeah, you... how. Kind of how you how you probably watched it, uh, <laughs> but uh, that is talked about in the book. Then I take it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well. The book is mainly yeah, about that because the book really right. covers that original draft uh, to the point where that original draft is fully in the book. I read that draft this week, top to bottom, and I and, and it's it's interjected with pages and pages of his notes, uh, not handwritten ones from the time, but like writings from himself, musing sort of retrospectively on the choices he made in that original script. There was also a twist at the end of that original script that we'll talk about later that I thought is really interesting, but I don't think fundamentally works, but it is a fascinating choice. Um, it's the it's the old clerks thing of uh, clearly this guy did not know how to end his movie. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we'll talk about it. But yeah, yeah, you're, we'll come back to that. I've made notes of the, the major shifts, but yes, I'm starting in the middle of the loop is one of the big changes from the original script. Now, Harold Ramis had a huge impact on this script. Um, and Ruben is very, very open about that in that book. It's a really, okay, good, it's good, a really good, great good. book. If, you, if, you'd like, if you're yeah, interested no, at all in screenwriting, I do recommend reading it because he's very, he's very knowledgeable and he really understands why it ended up working and that it was real, really a combination of all the pieces that came together. Sort of like a freak thing. That what his sort of darkly toned script that was very much against the Hollywood status quo was doing 
having a little bit of that re-injected into it by Harold Ramis as he sort of tried to please the original writer and the studio and himself creatively. It's a it's a really interesting book. Um, I do recommend mm. it. So yeah, I'm, nice. I, I'm a huge fan of this film, basically. It's one of those things I loved when I was younger and grew to appreciate more and more over the years. And um, it's that sort of film. And Nadia told this story to me the other day because I said, do you want to watch it with me? She goes, no, I saw it at Christmas. I said, oh, you watched it at Christmas? She went, yeah. It just sort of came on. And my family were all talking or playing games or whatever, and we all just sort of got drawn in, and then we were all just silently watching this movie. <laughs> and I was just like, that is the power of Groundhog Day. And even, yeah, when I, yeah. and even when I was watching it the other day while she's working from home, she would pass through the living room to get water and stuff while she was working in the office. And she, at least three times, like would sit down and watch a scene or two and then oh, drag herself yeah. back to work. So it's a, it's someone, a very... Someone call her company. It's a, it's a power... Yeah. It's a powerful... Working from home is all about trust, Dan. <laughs> Um, it's, 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 you know, it's a powerful film, is what I'm getting at. So yeah, big fan. Um, what, what did we think though, Chris, on the on the on the sort of on the the most recent viewing? How do how do we feel about it? Yeah, now? well, the well, kind of the um, the uh, so as I think Dan sort of covered the plot, but as Dan said, it's about a man who ends up in a loop on February the second. He mm-hmm. uh, goes to Pier. P- how do you say the name of the town? He goes to Punxsutawney. Punks are Tony uh, to watch uh, their Groundhog Day ceremony, um, which is where they get a groundhog, and it predicts the weather. Uh, he doesn't have a particularly good day, and then the day keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Um, I assume in the triv, there's some. I also watched a video on how many days they reckon it is. I assume maybe you've got some of that. Uh, I kind of have and haven't because uh, because basically the writer has said that. It's kind of impossible to say. It, it it can it could range from the fewest number you could get. We'll cover this now quickly, just so it doesn't keep going back. But the fewest number you could get if you just go by the days glimpsed physically in the movie is thirty eight. Mm. But the most you could get if you're accounting for time for him to learn and master the piano <laughs> and all the other stuff and all that. They, it, it we're talking thousands and thousands of days like up to ten thousand days i think someone worked out was the maximum yeah, I think, it, which which works out as something like i think they had it as like 20 odd years he was stuck in there yeah i think so so the writer originally said or or howard ramus i think originally said 10 years and then that sort of got upped to kind of 12 to 20 years basically mm-hmm. um and yeah it's uh it's it's a crazy amount of time so they he relives today and as dan said it's then the character development um i'd absolutely recommend this this film um you know broad strokes before spoilers um there it's it's entertaining it's a kind of it's got that old nostalgic film now um the you know certain classic films like this have mm-hmm. and i think it's a film that does work there's no um you know there's no sh- there's maybe one moment um where he gets away from someone um in a way that you could view probably wouldn't you wouldn't like maybe necessarily a feature in a movie now but it's not you know you compare it to short circuit you know and the and the sort of racist undertones you compare it to lady and the tramp you compare it to all sorts of movies the girl the girl next door uh, which came way after this you know all sorts of movies in general and all the movies we've done there's nothing that ages this movie as much there's nothing that makes you go oh that feels out of place it doesn't mm-hmm. it is one of those we've talked a lot on this podcast about the analogy or the story i always tell is i watched ghostbusters too late 
Um, I was too old. I, you know, I didn't necessarily enjoy it. Um, and I think there's, uh, you know, I enjoyed it, but it didn't, it didn't hit me in the way that it w- did. It would have done if I'd have watched it as a child. Um, I don't think there's a wrong time to watch this movie. I think it will mm. work and play for you and hit for you. Um, Bill Murray is fantastic in it. Mm-hmm. I don't think I found flaws. There were there were some things. There was some discussion points I want to discuss, uh, but mm. that's more for spoiler territory. Um, but I, yeah, I think and and as you say, uh, its execution as a script is basically perfect. Like there's it, it flows, it works. It all links back to each other and the the character development is huge. And, and this stuff that you shouldn't really buy. The biggest challenge in this film is 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 the development because um, and you, we'll talk more about this in the spoilers because um, I think it's discussion worthy. But I don't think it's really an outright they didn't do this. There are so, a lot of character development happens off screen. Um, it be that big emotional stuff, or be that as you you know you reference mild spoilers, learning the piano. Um, it, that's a huge to get that right to make that work mm-hmm. is is incredible and is a feat that the script is doing that is is absolutely phenomenal. Um, so yes, I absolutely uh, before spoilers do recommend this movie. Uh, so if you haven't watched this movie, pause go watch it and then and then come back for the discussion in in my opinion and i assume yours as well yeah oh yeah big recommend yeah it, it, it's it's a wonderful film that works on all levels and i th- and i agree with you that it is it is timeless and it's actually interesting because i was when i was reading rereading Haderet groundhog day um this last week um he, he talks about that and he actually had a few discussions and disagreements with harold ramis because at the time harold ramis was doing a lot of like very referential comedy you know, where they were doing, like, you know, it was jokes about things that were happening at the time. And Ruben felt very strongly he'd written a, a movie that will work theoretically forever. Like, he thought it was a... He felt like it was a timeless movie. He, that doesn't necessarily mean to think worth clarifying, and I think he says this in the book. You know, he didn't think it was going to be, like, a classic or anything, but he did think it was the sort of movie that if somebody uncovered it in the future, they would be able to get the same level of enjoyment out of it as somebody in the modern day would. He he felt mm. it was timeless in that way. He really he he was confident of that. And every time that Ramis tried to slide in more cultural references and things like that, which he gets away with one or two, the Heidi thing, the uh, we'll, we'll sort of say we're in total spoilery territory now. So if you if you've not seen the film, go watch it and come back. But if you haven't, if you have, you're with us now. Um, the section where he where the, it's like Heidi two is on at the cinema and he's dressed as Clint Eastwood. That's very referential, and apparently Ruben fought against that and several others, and he won on some and he lost on others, and that's why that one ends up in there. But that one, they just about get away with. It's thin enough that it doesn't really matter. They get they get away. You, it, it just kind of looks like a man losing his mind and drunk on power. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, that one, that one, it's... that one works either way, in my opinion. Yeah, I think it is the one where it's like, what the fuck? If you don't know the film, like, I, which I didn't, I was sat there like, what the fuck's this about? Like, but it's it's still that doesn't mean it doesn't work. It just makes you um, question. Um, mm-hmm. I yeah, I I completely agree. Um, I was going to say something about a point you made, but I think the the Heidi thing. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, that's it. The the aging thing. It doesn't even age um, because of technology. Because you don't even particularly. A lot of a lot of films now from the time period, you kind of think, ah, with a mobile phone, this would all be resolved. 
or you know you, mm-hmm. you almost expect someone to get out a phone because because of the cleverness of they're away from home and the snowstorm a mobile phone wouldn't make a difference here other than him phoning you know his mum to tell her he loved her or whatever mm-hmm. actually it doesn't even it's lack of technology doesn't even age it um, no because you almost feel like you almost feel like would... from his perspective technologically speaking he's stuck in the past like you, you it's like oh punks are totally so mm-hmm. backwards they don't even have good tech like you could you almost dismiss it as that even though that isn't the intention i'm sure that this is like you know i'm sure that radio clock he has next to his bed was the you know the latest model in the early 90s when this was filmed but now you just go oh isn't punks are totally quaint <laughs> yeah you wouldn't even i think one of the great one of the great reasons that you shouldn't adapt this is you wouldn't even need to change much, which means it's truly pointless. Yeah. Um, the alarm would be an alarm on a phone and all that sort of shit, but like, so you couldn't get the, the humour from the radio stuff. But actually, you know, a couple of lines about how the town's got shit internet or something, and, you know, it's, it's, it kind of can be exactly the same still. Yeah, yeah, it, it <laughs> which really is, can. Which really shows how timeless it is. Yeah, so I think so, Danny Rubin was absolutely right when he was thinking when he felt that way about the film. You know, he was he was mm. he was not wrong to assert that this is, uh, you know, this will continue to work forever. Like it's it's mm. it's it is a it is a great piece and and really brought to life. I think primarily, let's be honest, one of the biggest strengths of this movie is Bill Murray, and oh yeah, Ramis knew it too because I remember there's a bit in the book where he talks about talking to Ramis about how mean Phil was. And this is on the page, you know. They're just talking about the script at this point. Um, they'd cast Bill, but they hadn't seen it. You know, he hadn't done any testing or anything like that yet. Um, and Danny's like, "Oh, can he really call the larger guy pork chop? Is that is that too far? I mean, that's just that's just cruel for cruel's sake. Like, is, is Phil that kind of guy? And literally, apparently, Harold Ramis was like, "It's Bill. We'll be fine," <laughs> because Harold, having worked with Bill previously, understood that Bill could make a bad person likable. And yeah. And I think anyone else in that role, I don't think the movie works half as well. Because <laughs> he does, as good as that script is structurally, and, and the concept is obviously really strong, and the way it all develops is perfect. But like, let's be honest, you, you, it's a really tough job to sell that character <laughs> and that arc. Yeah. And the movie really yeah, relies on it, because if that doesn't work, nothing works. Yeah, the, it can't be stressed enough how much it hinges on... on on that arc and his character arc, um, mm-hmm. which kind of leads nicely into my discussion point in, in a way, because they, do you think they, either, I suppose it's a two part question. Do you think they try and do both? Do you think they try and do his arc, but then also tell a love story? Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think, cause I felt the, the love story, her choosing to stay was told in better, was, they had better days prior to the day that you know to the last to the actual last day um they had i think more romantic days and i think it was more believable you know there's a there's a scene where she stays and then disappears and obviously at the end she stays and and it goes on to the next day i think the see the um the other scenes of her staying you know after they play the cards and and i don't i don't know if the cards is a good ending or a bad ending i can't really remember it all sort of blurs but i think they there are 
days other than the last day where I'm more comfortable with her really truly falling for him. Um, I think on the last day, he's he's better. The last day tells his arc way better. He say he loves the townspeople. He saves them all. That's what his day is now: saving their lives and being. He is undoubtedly a better person in that. But, you know, she doesn't spend that much time with him on that day. She, for someone that's been so much about the person, the fact that he can play piano and all of that stuff, I think they set her character up as being someone not so easily impressed with that on, on previous days. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, what are your what are your thoughts on that? I can see how somebody would come to that conclusion. Um, I think that makes a certain amount of sense. Um, because obviously, yeah, you're right. It does seem like, oh, he didn't spend much time with her on that day. Why did that one succeed? But for me, I think what he learned earlier in the movie was trying to impress her by being exactly what he she wants him to be, you know, wants kids or has fun in the park or, you know, the, the, the romantic you know, where they're they're lying in the snow or playing the cards or any of that stuff, any of those previous nights. The difference is those were him trying to win her over for himself, for his benefit. Mm. The difference between that and the final day is she ends up coming back to his room when he's not even trying that. That day, he's living for other people. And I think they established her as a character who's... I don't think she's impressed by the piano thing. I mean, it's a fun moment. She's, like, smiling at him. And it's like, oh, I didn't... You know, you you have hidden depths. You can play the piano. Sure. But let's be honest. What really impresses her is that he's helped everyone in the town. When they're on the dance floor and people are approaching, like, one by one, like, oh, he, you know, uh, helped save our wedding or he stopped my husband from joking. And she's, like, seeing the selfless man... That's the difference to me. That's the difference between all the nights he was slapped versus that final night where he gets the next day. And I think it's really, really hit on the head beautifully in the last moment when you realize, when she sort of says, in, when, when it's the, so it wakes up on well, February 3rd, he's finally out of the loop. And she says, basically, we came, out, we came home and you just passed out. He didn't even try to sleep with her. Yeah, Which, that's one of the most. I was going to bring that up. That's one of the most effective things about that. Then yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's because that's brilliant. because yeah. that's the opposite of the man, you know, from half a movie ago who was doing nothing but trying to get in her pants desperately to the point where he started getting like he started getting really obsessive about it and was actually it was kind of becoming a bit creepy. In answer to your other question about like, you know, is it is it right that these two sort of separate arcs? You know, is, is, does that work quite as well as maybe they were hoping? You know, the idea that he's evolving, but also there's this love story. I actually think one of the biggest changes between Danny Rubin's original script and the final film is related to that. What Ramis realized was... So basically, Danny Rubin's original script has this subplot. Not a subplot, but this running thing where he talks about how there are 60-something eligible women in Punxsutawney. And he's managed to sleep with 40-odd of them. Comes across a bit leery, but you know this yeah. is the sort of thing you you know you weed out as you redraft a film, right? Like it might have seemed kind of funny, and it and it might have seemed like it really tonally pushed the character to the dark place he wanted him at the start of the film to get him to that good place. But you know through rewrites, you go that's too far, that's too leery, or whatever, and you take it out. I don't think that's a comment on what he was originally trying to do. And there was this scene in the middle 
And it's pretty similar to the scene we have now with him and Rita in the bar where he goes in and he asks for the drink, but it's not the same drink she wants. So he goes back in Then he asks for the same drink he knows she's going to want. And then there's the toast thing. You know that scene, but it's with a completely mm. random stranger woman. One of his 60 eligible women in the town. And apparently it was Ramis that went, no, these two things need to be linked. And if you look at the movie as it exists now, every major shift in his behavior comes following a moment with Rita. Mm. When she, the big section of d- depression and the suicide attempts all come after it, he realizes it's going to be hopeless with her. All of yeah. the all, the initial push yeah. to do what the fuck he wants and actually embrace it come after a conversation with her and then those drunk guys. She his his shifts as the story goes on, the different stages of Phil as he's learning and growing inside this repeating day are all propelled by Rita, ultimately. So I actually think that the two are interwoven pretty beautifully. Um, and the irony, obviously, towards the end, of not irony, but the power of the ending being that, you know, when he finally stopped trying to pursue her is when he got what he wanted. You know, he started looking after other people. And I like yeah, that she no, recognised that and then he got what he wanted. Uh, you know, And they're not, and I don't, I don't think they're not intertwined. I guess it's more... It, it's more the her of it all. Do you, you know, he, yesterday he was a cock to her and today he's told her he loves her. Like, and do, I guess it's not, I don't, I completely agree that it is intertwined. And as a film, the film does it beautifully. Um, And the, the character, like I said, the character, his character arc is done beautifully. Therefore, I guess my question, and it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't phrased like this, because um, I guess like this this conversation has got to the nub of what my question is: is could they ever do enough to make you believe that she would stay and not be like, "What do you mean you love me"? <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because I think one of the way one of the tricks the movie pulls to help get away with it. And this is a trick. But, I mean, movie making is a trick, right? It's about convincing mm. you of a thing with whatever method you have to you. But the movie cheats, because by the end, you, the only reason you believe it is the cumulative effect of all of the nice days they've had. Yeah, because you see... Yeah, as, a, as an audience member, <laughs> yes. you get it, because you've seen it. You, yeah. but she's not privy to those other Correct. You know, yeah. days. <laughs> yeah, um, so, so I guess the, the actual answer to your question is, practically speaking, no. In the context of the movie, yes. But it's achieved yeah. through a screenwriting technique, uh, you know, uh, rather than the reality of it. Does that make sense? Because yeah, and they, you, be- uh, you believe it because at that point you've seen them get on well enough together enough times to know that's a, that's a relationship that functions. So you, by that point, you're not questioning it anymore. <laughs> Which is, maybe yeah, you, could yeah. ar- you could argue cheap, but it works. It's beautifully done. Yeah, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. It's it, like I say, it's 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 beyond nitpicking because essentially it's not it's not saying anything about the film. It's essentially going with that with that specific character react mm. in that specific way, believably. If you're isolating the final day, so if you if you show an audience member the first scene of them in the weather station traveling into Punxsutawney, and then the final day, you'd be like, yeah, what happened? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> from yeah. her perspective. 
<laughs> and his, I suppose. Yeah, it, but they, but it doesn't, it doesn't break the film. And you no. know, you would be able, you would be able to find a character where you would question their motives in every single film we've already reviewed, and you know, every single film we we will probably subsequently review. Yeah. So it's it isn't it isn't a it isn't particularly even a nitpick. It's it's just it's one thing I was as someone who really gravitates towards love stories. Yes. It's one thing I sort of I wondered about. What, what um, you're saying is they know Max and Roxanne. <laughs> they know what? Sorry. So what you're saying is they know Max and Roxanne. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's the, the standard we shall judge all relationships on in this podcast going forward. Um, yeah, <laughs> the, I, 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 I agree with you. I, and I, but I will say though, I do think there is something to be said as well though um, about the the power of that final scene. The um, the what do you call it? The uh, that when 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 he reveals that he, you know when we reveal that he didn't sleep with her because you just sort of go like that's what she was after she was after someone who wasn't trying to get in her pants like so then everything yeah, that happens not... after that that feels quite i don't know that seems to and it's not it's not a um i don't think you have to believe you know it's again the discussion is all about her because i think that the power of the not sleeping thing is to show his character growth and i don't even think i didn't even particularly interpret it actually interestingly is him trying to get in her pants, uh, which isn't to excuse the character, because I that's think, definitely I the case early, with Nancy. I think early on, maybe. I, yeah, I, well, it just it felt a bit to me. To me, it reaches a point where it feels like anything he's doing to end the day differently is partly to see what happens if he ends the day differently. Um, but yeah, I think it does also then become a bit of a challenge. And what's interesting that that notion of he slept with forty of the sixty women that could still have happened in this draft. Like it's just Nancy's the only one we see in reference. Yeah, I yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing that the film does so so expertly. Is like for me a, a particularly effective scene was when he when he's going around telling the story of everyone yes. in the diner what an amazing because thing. we see we see the moment he decides to learn the piano we see him begin to learn the piano that's the kind of moment the moment where where he talks about everyone in the diner where in which we've there are a few people that we've had no we've not seen them interact we'd have no cause we have cause to believe and see why he's uh, and see him begin to learn the piano we have no cause to believe that he's engaged with each of those people and discussed it with them have discussed their lives or discussed the answers to um mm-hmm. you know, or the discuss the information that he's he's regurgitating so the fact that he's doing it just really hammers home how long he's been there um and really then justifies kind of at the end the superpowers of it all without that scene him catching the kid out of nowhere you'd be like oh who's this kid we've not seen this kid before but the script does such a good job of establishing no no he's been here for a while like it's and it's really cumulative because it's that because that scene's the real hammer on the head but like it's subtly embedded throughout earlier mm. scenes and it's subtly embedded throughout later scenes like, i'll give you a good example one that i thought was just genius and i only really noticed on this last watch through when he's in the hospital um with the old man which is a sequence to talk about in a minute because i really want to talk about the old man sequence i think it's a really interesting section of the movie um there's a kid in the background with a broken leg and later in the movie earlier in the day he stops the kid breaking his leg he stops the kid breaking his leg because his kids falls out the tree and it's the same kid it's the same actor and it's just like that's such a good attention to detail because obviously the work that this day has to feel like it exists 
wholly. Because the problem that you could potentially stumble into is this movie feeling kind of narrow. Yeah. We're not exploring the infinite possibilities of the day. And in fact, actually, arguably, while it could have been one of the movie's weaknesses, if they'd have just stuck to Phil's routine for the day every day, getting up, you know, passing the, the, the guy on the way down the stairs, the lady with the coffee, you know, uh, Ned Ryerson, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the groundhog, and then the cafe afterwards. If we'd have just kept into that and not explored the wider thing, like, you, it wouldn't feel... It could really feel very narrow, but what this movie does is make the day feel incredibly like so many like he's so trapped he can't leave the town he's only got the day and then it resets. Yet what they demonstrate in the end is, and I think I may even be paraphrasing something Ruben says in the book here, but what's incredible about this is that Phil has the best day of his life and the worst day of his life on the same day, and the only factor that changed was him. Yeah, what a great that was the other thesis. That was, that was the other thing I found so effective about the ending. Do you, there, there are days when you can absolutely believe that he ditched the groundhog ceremony and didn't bother with it. There are days he spent the entire day in bed. There are days, you know, that he mm-hmm. he killed himself and all of that stuff. But by the end of the film, I I believe that is not even that's not the first day he's done a good job on the groundhog day speech. So. In a world where he can do anything, he's still choosing to cover Groundhog Day. He's still mm-hmm. doing that. And every day he wakes up by that point, and every day he does a damn good job at doing that. And that, it, that just shows such character growth. Mm. I 100% agree. And, it's, and what a great like, message for the movie to have, that any day can be your worst or greatest day, and you're the factor. You you know it, the day is what you make of it. If if Phil chooses to throw his days away, which he you know the perspective this movie gives you on what his life can be and it you know isn't when he's not letting it be. It's it's a remarkable and it and it's subtle. Don't get me wrong. The movie doesn't end with you know Phil being like, "And what I learned is that I can make any day of whatever what it will." But you know what I mean? Like it's all it's it's just it's all there in subtext. But it is definitely what the movie is saying. You know what I mean? Like his, it, yeah, his worst yeah, day and his they, best day are the same day, and it, and the only factor that changes is him. And it's just incredible to see him get from one to the other and realize that. Um, it, what a, what a great message for any movie to have. Um, you know, and what an interesting way to explore it. And I've always talked about like a science fiction concept for me. You know, it only works well when it really helps push the character story. You know what I mean? Like, a, like a, you can have an interesting science fiction premise, but if it's not juxtaposed with a character arc and helping point out something about society or the people, then you don't even need the science fiction concept. It's pointless. Speaking, you know what I mean? Speaking of the speaking of the concept, yes, that is also one of the most impressive things about this movie. Yes, right? I know exactly. At what you were no, talking about. at no point yes. during the movie do you want an explanation. Correct. But why this is happening? Let's just like fuck. Let's just have a fucking moment silence or something to think about that. Like that shows how amazing the script is. You never go. Well, at least I didn't, and I you know haven't come across people that did. You never go. What's the explanation for this? How is it happening? What's going on? You're so swept up in the what. 
that you're not bothered about the why. Yeah. And it's so hard to see. It's so hard to picture this movie being made now without them having to explain or hint at what the hell is <laughs> well, going on. Do you want to? Do you want to know a little bit of stuff from the book about this? So yeah, yeah. This was it. Fucking hell! The... Are you gonna? Are you gonna cheat every week? You got a book for next week? So <laughs> I haven't. No, but well, look. I just. It's one of those things where I'd read the book. <laughs> you know, back a couple of years back, whenever it was, two thousand thirteen or fourteen or whatever. And I remember thinking when we were getting up to this, oh, it would be, you know, it'd be a really, because how often do I get to read a book written by the screenwriter when I've specifically said it's my one of the best written films of all time? Like, I, I'd yeah, be doing yeah. myself a disservice not to refresh myself on that book. Um, and I'm glad I did because I think I, it's definitely given me some insight. And I, I read the book before I watched the movie again on purpose because I knew the book mostly mm. dealt with the um, original draft and its transition to what it became and then I could watch what it became. So that's kind of how I did it. What was really interesting about it was he talked a lot about that because basically he strongly felt from day one, and it's absolutely on the page in the original draft, that there should never be an explanation. He says the second you put an explanation in, the movie becomes about Phil solving that problem, not his personal problem. Which, but, but you know what? That could have been an entertaining movie. Like, there is a movie there. Yeah, but, but I don't think it's a good movie. I don't, we think get it's a, I don't think it's as good a movie because it's the exact problem no, I've not. got then. It's, it's a person in a, in a situation and they're not learning anything about themselves along the side. They're just, you know, he might have fallen in love while he... Because the, all the different ideas they were throwing out... Cause, and, and, and let me tell you, the studio did want them to do this, by the way. They wanted them to put it in. It got to the point where Harold Ramis had to put him aside and said, can you write the gypsy curse scene? And it oh, was is that like, what it was? Is that well, what it was, meant it, was to be? it was one of ten different things. There was a gypsy curse. There was a disgruntled ex that cursed him. There was a time dilation explosion. There was all sorts of bullshit that they would because they when they first sat down to talk about it, him and Harold did talk about what they thought it might be, and they'd come up with like eight or nine different nonsense excuses. And then decided correctly that the movie didn't need it and that it would be distracting because as soon as you say, "Oh, it's a time dilation thing," then it's like, well, Phil's goal isn't to get better as a person. His goal now is to go find the you know the the the, the you know well, you the, no the... longer believe the only way of doing it is for the the only way to tell the audience it well if the audience so there's two options if the audience see it but the character doesn't then the audience spend the entire time thinking about that yeah if the audience if the audience see it and the character also sees then you don't buy or believe any of the development no because it's like he, he you know he, he's He's, he's, his goal is to is to you know find the MacGuffin to fix it at that point changes the character's trajectory it, it ruins the movie basically and they knew that but the studio rightfully so because they're protecting an investment uh, I always say rightfully so when I talk about studio interference because at the end of the day it's their money on the line um, pointed out that the, that the audience might want that and basically Harold Ramis the expert diplomat that that you know that he was um basically said write the scene we won't film it just write it put it in the script they want it in the script stick it in the script write the gypsy curse scene so that's what he did so there's a draft there's a there's a, there's a section of the book where you can read it's a really poorly written gypsy curse scene where phil first gets to punks a tony and he like pushes through a crowd and he insults some woman and her son and she curses him <laughs> it's awful but it's there and the only reason he wrote it was to make the studio go oh they listened to that note and then the goal was they just never filmed it 
because they weren't ever going to come back and re-question it, and Harold Ramis knew that. So, you know, it, it, it's it's really fascinating. They they both knew strongly that it didn't need to be in the movie, and even when the studio pushed for it, they were just... I mean, it, it, just goes, it does go to show Harold Ramis was... was was a real genius because um, that is a that's a really elegant solution to a studio note. Just fucking write it. We don't have to film it. Of course. Why did like why didn't I think of that? Like that's that's like that seems like the the obvious the obvious solution, right? Put it in the script because yeah. they want it. Take it out later, and there's, if they ask us about it, we'll say we didn't like it. Like okay, there's what? a there's a lot of um, it's very easy to see brilliant directing um, mm. in this movie. Like the, yes. the town. The tone, the ethos, the, the not ethos, the aesthetic, like yes. everything, everything feels so entwined and together. And yes. the, the town, the color palette, all of those things mm-hmm. are spot on. Even things like, and I, again, I, I saw a, it was in the in the making of documentary. It's probably in the triv. Like they did, basically, they did a lot of the. If a scene required the same setup, they did each version of that setup and that scene on the same day. Yes. So they didn't have to, you know, get extras back, and people would know what they were doing, and and so the detail would be right. Which again is is a great thing because you mm-hmm. you would have you would have an excuse to not get the detail right. Which is well, you know what? Even if Phil, even if Phil stutters. And you know is in does a double take before leaving the house because he thinks this is happening again. That could have an effect, a butterfly effect, and effect and change things. So there's there's even an excuse for the continuity to be off. People wouldn't like it, but it, it is it is something you could slip into the film. But they 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 choose not to do that. He chose not to do that. He he came up with a plan that meant you could execute it so beautifully and mm. and let the the world and the rules be so clear um yeah well it, it's interesting how they established the rules so in the original script the way phil checks that the day hasn't has gone back is every day he knocks he has like a suit um like what do you call it it's like a suit bag you know like a bag that he keeps his suit in like hung up on the back of the door mm. and he knocks it off every morning and if it's back up on that hook the next day, he knows he hasn't moved forward. Yeah. Like a little shortcut for him to know. Um, and they had to take that out um, for a couple of different reasons. But one of the things that Danny Rooms was like, well, we need to keep that in somehow. And they think that's when they came up with the idea of the snapping the pencil scene. I, I don't didn't you... notice that. So. Yeah, so there's a yeah, scene no. where he snaps the pencil, puts it on his bedside... And then when it's the next day, he looks and the pencil is in one piece again. Uh, um, right. And 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 that's that's a that's sort of like a again just a very simple way to teach you the rules of this. There really are no consequences, and it's uh, again comes down to really good writing. Um, let's quickly talk about a couple of the like sections of the movie that are really powerful. Mm-hmm. I think let's let's talk a little bit about the suicides because there's, so there's a section of the movie after the so the arc of the movie is introduction. Like, this is the problem. He's stuck in the same day. And that's all kind of fun. And, like, it's Phil losing his mind because he's like, well, I don't understand what's happening. It's that my favorite moment and the line delivery that I'll that's in my head and will live in my head forever, which is um, his performance on the second day when he's doing the Groundhog Day news report. And he goes, well, it's Groundhog Day again. <laughs> it's just yeah. perfect. So that's the first section of the movie. Then we go into the consequence-free section of the movie where he realizes, well, no, there's the, there's the there's the denial stage where he's like trying to get his head checked and all that stuff, 
Um, and then we go into the 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 consequence free stage of the movie where he basically just goes nuts. He steals a car and that nearly crashes into a train. Gets himself arrested. Wakes up this morning. Starts. That's when he starts womanizing with Nancy and all that stuff. Um, and then eventually it leads him into the next session of the movie, which is the Rita thing, when he sort of like starts to develop feelings for Rita, and he's trying to come on to Rita with various ways. And it, there's a whole sequence of events to do with him trying to impress and win her over, and then it ends on a really awesome and hilarious montage of him being slapped every time. Like, and no matter what he does, it doesn't seem to ever work out for him. And then we go into the stage that I'm that, yeah, it's it's it is the depression stage. There's just it's where. He's finished having his fun with it, evidently. He's not trying to better himself yet. He's given up with Rita. He's got nothing left. So he just starts trying to kill himself. And in any other movie, that is far too dark to put in. But you do, when they get to it in the film, you really do believe he's at his, his end. And you understand how he's got there. It's like, I, I've lived a lifetime inside this you know what does what does it matter now you know and the idea that the, the the imagine that being so depressed trying to kill yourself and then not even that you can't even do that you can't even end it that way you just wake up with fucking that song playing every morning you know and then it becomes comical because after the first one which feels dramatic well actually the first one was a really good joke built into it which we'll talk about i suppose in a second but the but the, the subsequent deaths they end up being more and more comical because at a certain point, you know he's going to be fine. So it no longer becomes suicide. It becomes like, oh, he's, he's ended that day short, <laughs> you know. Um, and that allows them to do some really gruesome things, but quite funnily. And I think any other movie tonally would really struggle to balance that. Really struggle to balance that. But this movie just absolutely nails it. Like, they knock it right out of the park. And I know that when we when you sort of said last time... Um, the last podcast, you know, I'm going to see if I can find something that's right. And then I think either right at the end or at the end of the phone conversation, I don't know if it ended up on the recording or not, but you even said, I think there's that suicide bit. Like you were maybe thinking maybe it's tonally didn't fit. Like it was a bit dark for the rest of the movie. Um, but I, I, having watched it looking out for that, because I, I thought that was a good shout. I thought actually, if you're going to find a flaw in the movie, maybe that is a bit dark for this movie. Um, now I think of it, but rewatching it, I think it works really well, and it's one of my favorite sections of the movie because I think it's really powerful, and it also it's again it's that progression of Phil because after the after the suicide attempts, that's when he sort of he ends up picking himself back up again through the old man sequence, which is another sequence we'll talk about in a minute. But I don't know how did you feel about the the, the suicide stuff? Yeah, I think I think a lot of what you said is is true. Watching it this time around, I think in the in the, the first time I was kind of. Um, maybe quite surprised by it or particularly conscious of it but i think i think you're right about well, the the thing that's embedded i assume you mean is the um is the fact that he's nicked the groundhog and he's talking to it the entire time and making the groundhog drive um, yeah <laughs> which is a funny technique and even then the next one i believe is the is the bathtub and the way he steals the toaster <laughs> Jesus, off of the old lady so <laughs> is very entertaining um they do None of them are, you know, he's not, the the imagery of it is, is cartoonish. The, yes. you know, the, it is not, it is a live action cartoon for that sequence. It's not him putting a gun to his head. It's not him 
overdosing. Even the, even when he references his suicide attempts, suicide attempts, he's talking about getting burnt and stabbed. Like you know, they they don't even go that dark in that montage. Um, I think you're right. I think they do they do set that character up in a way where you or to, they get them to a point where you kind of you go, well, what is his other way out of it? What what should he do? Um, and that desperation thing of, of just trying something different to see if it will work. Um, and the fact that, you know, that first attempt in particular, it, his his monologue, his thinking behind it, you know, you know, it's it's him trying to get out of the situation as opposed to him trying to kill himself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree that it is not I had more of a as you know, we've already discussed my kind of the thing I was more like, hmm, about was the, uh, was the, the Rita of it all way more mm. than the suicide bit. Um, and, and the, what I referenced earlier, um, was I think the only scene that perhaps you'd potentially take out in an updated version is, um, he, him getting away from the insurance salesman, um, by it's very funny, but by essentially pretending to be gay and that just makes the guy go, Oh no, 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 no. And, and run off. I think you'd potentially get, Do you rid think of that's that what now. that's how I don't, that's not how I read that scene at all. Really? How did you read it then? Just, he was being extra clingy back. Like he, like, like what was annoying about the insurance guy was his like insistence on like, you know, being buddy, buddy and like, Oh, you, where, where are you going for, for the very first interaction with the insurance salesman? He wants to know where he's going for lunch. He's talking about following him, you know, coming with him, even though Phil's showing absolutely no interest in interacting with this person. I, I, I think it's the opposite thing. It's I I can't remember the exact line, but it's, it's apparently it's an improvised line, but it's like, um, it's something like, where are you going next? Cause I want to be there or something like that. Yeah. It's very funny. I didn't, yeah, I didn't read that as a, as that at all. I read that as, oh, this guy's kind of creepy and weird. Like this is, <laughs> this is like, it, like yeah. It it could just be because I watched it very close to the honest trailer for Friends, where they point out all the kind of outdated homophobia that's in Friends, right, where they're right, like, right. "Oh no, we can't, we talked about it with Saved by the Bell." So it could just be that that's you know making me read it that way. Yeah, um, but just the way the way guy way. like jumps out of his eye, arms and runs off, I I think you could interpret it that way. Um, and I kind of thought, well, I wonder if they'd take that out. Yeah, I've, I've got the line. Now. I don't know where you're headed, but can you call in sick? <laughs> Yeah, and it is <laughs> funny, but it's just it's the great. way it's delivered and stuff. I I think you could interpret it that way. Interesting. It was an improvised line. So, it, it, you know, what it, in terms of intent, it, it wasn't even in the original script. So it's hard to predict what, you know, I think, you know, hard to predict what the intent was in that moment when, when, when he came out with that. But I assume the reason it stayed in is because it's funny, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. For sure. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, what are your other what are your other notes? You, you well, want to just, talk about the old man? Yeah, I just thought it was a really good turning point um, for the mm. character to, to to see him caring that much about somebody living. And I just wanted to get your you, your thoughts on you that think, section. Do you do you think? I think that section is one of the most powerful sections of the film. Um, do you think they do enough to? Because I read it as in the end, he concludes that sometimes it's people's time to go. Do you yes. think the film does enough to? make you realize that's what he's concluded there or? um i thought so i've never i've never mm. felt any other interpretation of that and what's funny about the way that scene works is it's 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 the first thing he's told <laughs> the very first day he brings the old man to that hospital the nurse says to him sometimes it's just their time to die and he goes straight into denial mode 
and then we get the sequence of him trying to make the make the guy you know not pass away um and i feel like it's he's trying to prove her wrong that whole time and then when he gives up you, you very clearly go out because he's realized what that what what she told him is that is exactly right you know sometimes it's just that someone's time to go um just a really powerful situation i remember when i first saw the movie I can't remember if this is the first time I saw the whole movie or the first time I saw this, but the first time I saw this sequence, I remember it, it did make me really sad. I felt really sad for that old man. And I felt sad for Phil mm. because, like, all Phil wanted to do for the first time, it seems, in his life was help someone, you know, and he, yeah. and he happened to pick the one person he couldn't help. Uh, and, and, the, it, and the way that propels him into then helping everyone else, I think, is a really brilliant idea. And yeah. it's powerful as well because it's one of the first times in the film that he's trying to help for no selfish gain. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's, it's um, the, it is the turning point. It's a it's a it's a really pivotal pivotal section of the movie because it's a really great sequence. Number one, and also how, how many movies have the opportunity to de- demonstrate that idea that sometimes it's some you know most movies someone dies you don't get a redo <laughs> anyway you know mm. so the idea that that's what they had here they, and the way they used it. I thought it was genius. Um, you really cared about it, but also, yeah, you, it's it's hugely pivotal pivotal to his. Do you think you arc. could have had the old man in the montage at the end? He goes up to the old man and says, "You know, I don't know." He gives him he gives him a quarter for the old man to phone his family and make up with them. You know, if they'd had a fight or something. Do you think you there's a world where that old man could have been part of that montage and him doing something to make the old man's last day peaceful at best? Yeah, there there, there is, but it's really hard because I feel like the movie tried to give you closure on the old man in that sequence. Yeah. And it, and I, I like to think that he built up things he was doing every day. So in my head, seeing the old man and taking him for lunch, like he does in that montage, I like to think he did that every day. Because you know, there's the, when he saves the kid right. in the final montage... Yeah, he says, you've never thanked me. Yeah, which means like he's obviously... he. I think I like to think he put that perfect day together over time because he was yeah. like because he was like oh god all right I, I had time to save the choking guy this week this t- the last day but that meant i couldn't get to here to do this so i need to figure out how to like and he sort of like he kept trying and trying and trying to make sure he could help everyone on the same day so i still think he did stuff for that old man on that final day anyway but from the movie's perspective you get such closure on that idea of sometimes it's just your time to die to bring the character back while perfectly within the logic of the movie might have hurt that message might have yeah. in the hands of a capable writer of course anything could work but like i, I would have been if it, if i'd have been handed that script and said figure out a way to put that old man towards the end i'd have struggled to do it in a way that would have felt you know maybe just reuse that clip of him with him in the diner to show he's doing that maybe that would have been enough yeah but i think you're right there is an element of that's the action that phil did when he was desperately trying to come up with a solution so yes. it's kind of you don't need to yeah, you don't need to see it. What were your other notes uh, and or hit me, well, with the, hit me with some triv? Well, we, we, we've got, let's talk about the draft differences first because there's some really big differences between the finished film and the original draft. And I really, I'm looking forward to talking to you about them. Um, only a, I've listed a couple. Um, some are major, some are small. Um, first of all, as you pointed out, the original draft of the movie did not start showing you him getting stuck in the loop. It started, and it's worth noting here, that it had narration. The whole movie was narrated like a voiceover, um, from Phil, explaining, but he wasn't really explaining. So the movie starts, and he wakes up, and it's like, 
it's like who is this arsehole because like he walks past the, the the guy on the stairs and he's rude to him and he's rude to the lady downstairs and he's like you know and it's clearly early in the loop still but then he punches Ned Ryerson and you have no idea why. And that's a running joke in the whole movie is he keeps punching him and the movie doesn't like, and it gets to a point at the end where the narration even goes, I've been stuck in this loop for so long. I don't even remember why I punch him now. <laughs> <Which is beautiful. laughs> and then towards the end, the payoff is he talks to him and finds out that he's the insurance guy. Like, yeah, you know, get, you know, and you, but from the audience perspective, the movie starts in a state of utter confusion He's just like, what is happening? Because the first day you see, he's doing all this insane stuff, and you're just like, what? Who is this man? And then he, then he sort of they they play into this. I think I might be immortal stuff, and then you realize what's happening in the loop. It's a really interesting way to start the movie. Um, I think potentially it might even be better than what we got potentially, because it is bolder. It's definitely more unique. It's definitely less Hollywood. But I think it makes the movie less accessible. So that thing that was described earlier in this podcast where Nadia's family, this movie came on and they all got sucked in. I think you lose that with that. I, I think it's maybe objectively a more interesting movie. But leaving your audience confused for the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie before they understand what's happening. Probably not a great move. <laughs> <laughs> no, creatively I I, interesting I, I, <laughs> but yeah like i i like i love movies where you know what's happening slowly unfolds i think momentum is a memento whatever mm-hmm. it's called memento um is a uh is a work of art but it yeah it's not it isn't the most accessible i also think the the risk of that route is uh the damage it, it does a lot of damage to me to the character arc right because whilst you could make the argument well angry and pissed off to pleasant guy who's helping people the the arc is still there if anything it's in heightened because we you know we start from a real angry point of view Mm -hmm. if you start your character with an excuse to be the way they are in this case the fact that he's stuck in this loop and frustrated by it Mm -hmm. then for me it lessens it lessens them going from a to b because it's it's more like going from a point five to b like it, they they've we've missed part of the journey and you kind of go oh well for all we know he was he was he was quite friendly before he got stuck in the loop and we we're seeing him in, him 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 in this heightened state because he's in the loop but because we see him you know with no reason to be an arsehole and he is still an arsehole yes. it emphasizes more that he's an arsehole that's a really good point. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You do, you do lose more than accessibility. You're right. It hurts the arc. That's absolutely true. I think so. Very well observed, Chris. Very well observed. Oh, thank you. But I, I do love the idea that he just punches the guy every day and you don't know why, and then it gets to the point when even he doesn't hey, know uh, why. That's, the, the, the idea, the, in principle, is very good. But yeah, you, you, it hurts the there's arc. There's something incredibly satisfying when you watch a movie and don't know what's going on and then work out what's going on. Yeah. Uh, or the pieces unfold. Um, but so, the, excuse me. But the heart of this movie is the character arc, and I think that would damage it. Agreed. Agreed. Um, two of the little differences, or three. One is a whole section in the original draft where he's trying to assassinate the groundhog, like he buys a rifle <laughs> and tries to kill that groundhog. No. You know what? I think it's logical. In his scenario, <laughs> you would, you would. <laughs> turn yeah, you would turn right. and look i'm laughing because it's funny because i think you're absolutely right i don't think there's a part of me that would question it 
<laughs> yeah, because you would turn you would turn to the groundhog. You would assume that you had to do something to the groundhog to break to break the loop. Or if you had infinite days, eventually you'd run out of other things to try and go. Like, well, I guess that's my next move, right? <laughs> like I could. No, I'd like I to think I, I would see. never resort to killing, but yeah, I... yeah. Um, so yeah, he um, he buys a rifle, and he, the guy he buys the rifle from goes, "You've got the paperwork, right?" And he goes, "Yes." And the guy winks at him, <laughs> and he says, "Well, it's not small game season anymore, so you're not going to be killing any small game, are you?" And Phil's like, um, "No." And the guy winks at him again. <laughs> It's like, it's, it's actually a really funny Wait. scene. And then he goes to Gobbler's Knob and he's trying to assassinate him with a rifle. It's just, it's really funny. But apparently it was taken out not because of any like story reason or practicality or anything like that. It was taken out when they cast Bill Murray because he'd just done Caddyshack, which is him fighting a gopher. Oh, wow. And they didn't want the movie to be compared to Caddyshack. I say just. He'd done Caddyshack. I, I, when's Caddyshack? Like, 80s? Yeah. But he'd done, he'd done the movie where he fights a gopher with, with Chevy Chase. Um, yeah, that is Caddyshack, I think. So that was like 80... I must have been like, what, 84, I want to say? Yeah, something like that. So it was, maybe it was even 10 years ago, but he'd done it soon, recently enough that they were like, we can't make can't do a Bill Murray movie where he fights a wow. groundhog. Because we've, we, he's, he's done that. And then... Fair play. The very biggest... Di- well, not very biggest. The biggest difference is starting in the middle in the narration. But one of the biggest changes between the uh, the film we got and the original draft is the ending. Oh, actually, no. Sorry, one of the quick small change, smaller change. In the original draft, we track how many days he's been in there. Um, and the way they do it, nice idea. But I think it's uh, it's it's more fun for the audience to not know. But also, I think you will, if you give an answer to that question, someone somewhere will find a logic hole. So it's what, easier to just not answer it. Well, yeah. Uh, what's interesting about the way they do it, it's pretty clever, is that Bed and Breakfast he's in has a huge bookshelf in the original script. And basically, right. what he does, he goes down, picks off a book, the first book in the top right corner, reads the first page, and then he reads one page every day. Uh, right, okay. And then it gets to the point where he's read every page of every book and he has to go back to the start and he calls it his birthday when he gets to the end of the bookcase and then he counts how many pages are in each book and works out how many days he was in it but he does that about two-thirds of the way into the movie and then we don't track it again as we go into the final act so it's it's pretty it's pretty clever actually um as a route for doing it um but you're right. But I don't know what it adds. No, I don't. Exactly. I don't. I, it's, it's clever, I don't think but it's, it's, it's clever yeah. for clever's sake. It doesn't really help tell the story, which is yeah. Bad. I don't think a definitive answer to that question adds anything to the to the script, other than that it makes sense. Somebody will try to keep track of it in some way. I would if I was stuck in a yeah. loop. I'd be trying to find a way to keep track of it, and that's a really elegant solution. Yeah. But you're probably like, I agree and I would say the same. But, you know, I know myself after after a year. Nah, I'm, not, I'm probably not keeping track. Yeah, that's fair. So then the biggest difference is the ending. So in the original draft, and this screams, I don't know how to end my movie. Because in that original draft, remember, Rita wasn't quite as intertwined with, with Phil. So I guess he was looking for more than the catharsis. Of because that is the biggest problem with that original draft is because it's not as intertwined the Rita Phil stuff that that, that 
him getting with Reacher at the end in the original draft isn't quite the glorious ending that it should be. Right. Does that make sense? It's just kind of like, yeah. oh, he did it. Like, So the way the original draft ends is the narration kicks back in, but it's no longer Phil. It's Rita. And she's annoyed that she's woken up in bed with Phil hundreds of times. <laughs> suggesting that <laughs> February 3rd has become her loop day. God, what's such a, that's a really nice idea. I really like it. Um, the problem is, again, it undoes the arc because the yes. suggestion that his happy ending is her awful starting point yes. <laughs> completely lessens it. I like I like the notion of the joke. Like, there's it, a great... It, I won't it, spoil it. Works, it but it a, works better in a world where... That it works better in that draft because again, their relationship isn't so key to that story. Yeah, he describes okay, he yeah. describes that draft as a dark comedy that happens to include a romance, whereas he thinks the final script is a romantic comedy. Yeah, that's that's, that's his defense I, I, in the script. He thinks it totally fits with what he's written. We've got. Yes, me too. Yeah. We uh, there's a great joke at the end of yesterday, which is which that reminds me of. Yes, um, correct. Yes, it's very but similar. It's actually. not as yeah, um, but in yesterday you kind of go, you want a warm feeling of oh god, you could make a sequel just about that. Uh, well, it's basically the same thing where you go, oh, you could do the entire film again, but just do that. Um, but there's no, there's less. Um, that doesn't impact anyone's arc uh, like it would in that. Yeah, agreed. God, take a take a shot every time Dan says the word book and I've said the word arc in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be dead, right? Let's you'd, you'd uh, let's be, qu- you'd be drunk. Let's fly yeah. through the triv because um, yeah, we're getting we're getting there. I've 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 considering how much triv there is on IMDb. I've really whittled this down. There's still a fair bit, but like this that surprises was... me. I thought well, we've talked a lot about various things um, naturally, but I'm su- I'm surprised to hear you say that. I assumed there'd be shitloads of trip for this film. The, there is sh- there is shit tons on the IMDb, but a lot of it was either stuff from the book, which I knew would come up naturally because I wanted to talk about the differences in the drafts, and I wanted to talk mm. about you know like the the, the way that ha- that Harold Ramis came in and made some changes to the movie, and a lot of the trip focused on that stuff, so it made it very easy to cut a bunch of it. There was a bunch of stuff that was just like. Just not interesting. Um, so, and I, and also I, these have gone on too long in previous episodes. So I'm really starting to make sure I call them now, um, in a in a more dramatic way. And this is still a fair amount of triv, which tells you how much there actually was before I went through the culling. Anyway, mm. so in the scene where Phil picks up the alarm clock and slams it onto the floor, uh, it didn't actually go as planned. He slammed the cl- clock down really hard, but it didn't break at all. Um, the crew had to bash it with a hammer to give it the smashed look. Um, and the clock did actually, though, continue playing the song like it does in the movie. <laughs> Can I just say, one of the most effective shots of the whole movie on that, because we've not mentioned it, is the the close-up of the clock, um, like tiles spinning round. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah, it's very cool. Really good. I had a look today to see if you could buy that model clock still, you know, on like eBay or whatever. Uh, you can, but it's um, pricey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, according to director Harold Ramis, most of the time when he tried to explain where a scene took place in the movie to Bill Murray, because obviously they filmed it not chronologically, because it doesn't make any sense to reset up Ned Ryerson's shot every two weeks. So all the Ned Ryerson stuff on that street corner would have been done over a course of a couple of days on that set with those setups. But it meant that because they were shooting everything out of sequence, it was very hard to keep track of what scene went where and how in the finished product. So everyone was just sort of trusting Ramis and the producers and the writers to keep it all, you know, in order so whenever bill murray 
would ask what was going on, and Harold Ramis would launch into an explanation of where in the movie they were. Murray would simply interrupt and ask, ask just tell me, good Phil or bad Phil? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he figured it out. I mean, considering how good that performance is, if that's all he needed to go into each scene, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That's some good acting. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, all the clocks in the diner are stopped, mirroring Phil's predicament of being stuck in time. It's pretty cool. Mm. And they didn't actually get to film it in Punxsutawney, sadly. Um, they chose Woodstock, Illinois, which is uh, 50 miles from Bill Murray's hometown um, in Illinois. Uh, there is now a small plaque that reads, Bill Murray stepped here on the curb, where Bill Murray continually stepped into the puddle. And then there is another <laughs> plaque on the building of the wall on the corner that says Ned's Corner, where Phil obviously was repeatedly accosted by Needlenose Ned, Ned Ryerson mm. himself. Um, I kind of feel if you've got if you've got the plaque on the step, you probably don't need the plaque on the corner as well. Like I, when you I, said there's another plaque, I was expecting it to be in a completely different location. No, yeah, like, like the house. Or something. <laughs> but, and there's a there's the another room. plaque. Yeah, but to be fair, it's just from, like... from, from, from to be fair, actually, the way those two shots are done, they could actually have been shot in two quite different locations. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, you're right. I, otherwise, I agree. Um, apparently, Bill Murray was undergoing a divorce at the time during the filming of this, and he got quite—he was sort of distracting himself from the from the from his woes by obsessing about this film. And he would apparently ring Harold Ramis constantly, like in the early hours of the morning and such. So R- Ramis eventually sent writer Danny Rubens to sit with Murray and iron out all of his anxieties. Um, and uh, it's actually one of the reasons Murray gave for stopping speaking to Harold Ramis years later. But what's um, they didn't speak for like seven years, famously. If you want to look into that, it's a really interesting situation that developed between those two. Well, What's... because he felt that Harold Ramis should have been more supportive of him instead of giving him to the writer or something. Yeah, that was yeah. But I, my understanding is that their falling out was a sequence of things, not just on one right. thing. But that that presumed, right. that that reportedly uh, played a part in it. What's funny about this is I was reading the book, obviously, and he talked about. How he'd only, the studio, when they hired him, hired him for two rewrites. They let him rewrite it once, having met with Harold and discussing what the changes should be made. Then they let Harold rewrite it, and it didn't seem like they were going to bring Danny back in for a third rewrite until the Bill Murray stuff happened. So the way it's played in the book is, oh yeah, they brought me back in to work with Bill. <laughs> I got to do my second contracted rewrite. <laughs> but reading the trivia and discovering it was just Harold's way of fobbing Bill Murray off on someone else <laughs> sheds a very I different mean, light that, on that. <laughs> that piece of trivia slightly contradicts the good Phil or bad Phil bit, doesn't it? <laughs> no, no, not necessarily. But what is a man deeply obsessing with a film um, and asking the screenwriter questions and the screenwriter having to rewrite it? And one is a person who's about to do a scene and doesn't know where they are in the film and just needs to be told good or bad. Yeah, because I think when you when you so you're looking at that at that point, he's seeing the script as a whole script in chronological order, but not right, knowing okay. where you are okay. in the movie when you're shooting out of chronological order, especially a movie as complicated as this, I think makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's fair okay. enough. Fair <laughs> enough. You know, because yeah, you'd be because it's it's not so much about where he is in the movie, I suppose, more it is which scene are they now shooting for the movie, like because they're jumping around so much. Because the Ned Ryerson scenes, for example, are split across the whole movie, right? There's like six or seven of them. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And and the early ones, obviously, he's bad film. The later ones, he's good film. It's like we're about to shoot you talking to Ned again. And he's like, all right, what am I supposed to be good Phil or bad Phil right now? Cause I'm, I'm losing track because we're not shooting chronologically. So I guess it's more about the production than him not understanding the story. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are exactly 38 days depicted in the film, uh, partially or in full. Um, well, no days shown in full. I think it's a weird way to phrase that, but yes. Um, lots of debates to be had about how much of that how much time he spent in there i didn't keep much of that in the trivia i only kept that one because that one is factually definite whereas the rest are all just a lot of people speculating on all sorts of stuff and there's too many factors to actually know thousands of days for sure um bill was actually offered a spit bucket for the diner scene where he's eating all the pastries but he refused it um the angel food cake in particular caused him to feel very sick um quite soon afterwards a little addendum to that story from the take a shot book is that uh, Danny Rubin describes it as he got a bit grumpy with um, Andy McDowell because she messed up her lines a bunch of times that day and he had to keep eating the food, which was making him sick. God, but there's an element of you were off in a bucket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He wanted authenticity, Chris. He wanted authenticity. Um, the Groundhog Ceremony is depicted as occurring in the centre of town, but Gobbler's Knob um, is actually a, a bit more rural and wooded area that's about two miles outside of Punxsutawney. Um, I imagine that upsets people who travel there imagining the movie. <laughs> mm. um, I mean, it's probably the same, though. It's Because pro- from my understanding is Danny and Harold went to visit and do the Groundhog Day ceremony. So um, I think the ceremony itself is pretty accurate, but a lot of that okay. stuff they've added. Um, in the penultimate, in penultimate encounter between uh, Connors and the annoying insurance salesman Ned Ryerson, Bill Murray was ad-libbing when he says to Ned um, I don't know where you're headed but can you call in sick which causes Ned to run away uh, we've, ah, I've just realized I'm reading one that we've touched on annoying but there you go um, the other ad-libbed line in the movie is the cameraman's line when Bill drives the car or when Phil drives the car off the cliff and he goes maybe he's okay and then the car explodes and he goes well probably not now um, apparently, yeah, that appara- was great. <laughs> apparently the well probably not now line was ad-libbed oh, okay so the original script, he was just like, maybe he's okay, and then it explodes, and that's the joke. But he added yeah. the, well, probably not now, which I think is very good. Very funny. Really puts a little punch on the end Yeah, of he's a good actor. He's he's great in uh, There's Something About Mary as well. Yeah, he's, he's one of those actors that's been in like, so many things. He never been, I, I've never seen him as the lead, but he's always great in those sort of small side roles. I feel like he's been in a bunch yeah. of sitcoms. I feel like he played someone's deadbeat dad in a sitcom. Uh, he did, uh, How I Met Your Mother. There you go. He played Perfect. Lily's dad. Yeah, he's and he's he's just he's he's so reliable. Like I, I, that sounds like an insult, but I just like I feel like if I if I worked on a thing and he was hired as, as in the cast, I'd be like, cool, sorted. I don't have yeah, to worry yeah, about that anymore. Like he will bring comedy to this. Um, yeah, yeah I, I like that I guy a lot. I think he's very good. Forget his name, but uh, yeah, really good. I think it's Chris Elliott. I think I googled him to check he was How I Met Your Mother, and there's something about Mary. Yeah. I think it's Chris Elliott. I might yeah. be wrong, but I think. Cool. There you go. So, um, I'm glad you someone remembered his name because it seems seems like a shallow compliment when I don't remember the guy's name afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the course of the film, Phil endures um, the five stages of death. He goes through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, they sort of took it as a model for his arc, um, and they used that as a temp- template for the uh, for the for the progress. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Definitely. Michael Keaton was actually offered um, the role, um, but he turned it down because he found the movie confusing when he read the script. Um, the irony being that he would end up teaming up with Andy McDowell later and working on a Harold Ramis directed film in Multiplicity. 
It, it's hard to imagine anyone else doing that lead role. <laughs> it really is. Do you want to hear some of the other people that were considered? Yeah, yeah. So Michael Keaton was offered it, but turned it down because he didn't understand the script. But other people who were considered, Tom Hanks, Chevy Chase, yeah, I think... no. Steve Martin, and John Travolta. Yeah. Out of those names, I think, well, I'd probably be most fascinated to see Travolta. Um, but out of those names, I think Steve Martin would be the name that I would go, could, you know, that, this person could do it. I agree. Um, Everyone else but, is too nice. Yeah. Tom yeah, Hanks particularly. Just, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Like, I believe Tom Hanks' is, is ending movie, Phil Connors, I struggle to see him as the cynical guy at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, and I think Steve Martin would none of them would be able to play grumpy as well. Like mm-hmm. he's a grumpy arsehole. I kind of feel like Steve. Like you look at Little Shop of Horrors, Steve Martin's bad guy is a is a villain. You don't you don't want him to be a villain. You just want exactly. him to be a grumpy arsehole. Yeah, and and a grumpy arsehole that's somehow still a bit likable, or like, at the very least entertaining. Yeah, he's, he's got to be charming or entertaining in some way, or you really aren't on board with the uh, with the with the thing. Um, interestingly, you may have noticed that you know the couple that are getting married. Mm. Uh, you may have noticed the male cast member of those two is Michael Shannon. Oh, is he cool? This is very, very first movie role before you know. Oh wow! Being Zod and many other great roles over the years, um, including yeah. most recently that he was really good in uh, Knives Out. It's a great movie. He's really good. Oh, in cool. It. So there you go. Um, this is his very first role. Uh, scenes uh, showcasing um, Phil doing the weather predictions at the news station and the introduction to Rita were actually not conceived until during and then filmed after the editing process. So the movie originally oh, wow. started with them traveling into Punxsutawney in the vehicle. So the scene in the oh, vehicle. I think you was... need those scenes. I think they set up her wonderfully. Her like playing around with the green mm. screen is great. And actually like you kind of, you kind of need to, like you said, you need to warm to Phil a bit, and the notion that he's actually genuinely good at his job does make you warm to him a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's, I think that's, I mean, again, the genius of Harold Ramis, he sat down in that editing booth, they showed him the footage, and he clocked that and added the scenes. Like, that's, mm. do you know what I mean? He, like, he knew what the movie needed to work. Mm. He was a genius. Gone way too soon, bless him. Yeah, absolutely, hundred um, percent. This is kind of made me want to rewatch Multiplicity, actually, because that's another good movie. Um, but there you go. So, uh, Chicago radio legend Steve Dahl was actually asked by Ramis to be the radio announcer at the beginning of every day, um, but his partner, who would have had to play the other movie, you know, to make it work, um, didn't understand the movie and didn't want to do it, so it didn't happen. It's a shame. Um, our world famous segment returns, Chris. Cars exist. They do exist. Tell me more, Dan. Cars exist. Um, cars exist. Yes, the red Cadillac in the No Tomorrow driving scene is the 1974 Cadillac Eldorado convertible with a non-stock grille. The trivia that came with this also added a bunch of stuff about how it was front-wheel drive for several years, then it was a rear-wheel drive car, and then the other way around. Don't care. Don't know why you put that in the trivia for Groundhog Day the movie, but thank you. Cars exist. Love it. Cars exist is re- returns and it, it, with with force. It's amazing how few movies have have come that don't have cars exist trivia somewhere in it. 
Man. Uh, you wait. You wait till we get to the point where we're doing the Fast and the Furious. You wait for the cars exist there. Yeah, it's going to be good. Right, last couple, very quickly. Uh, when Phil takes the elderly man to the hospital. Oh, we've already done this one. It's the boy with the broken leg that can be seen in the background. In the final shot, uh, Phil carries Rita over the gate and then he climbs over it. This is actually because the gate was frozen shut. <laughs> oh, <So>, right. <laughs> they were just solving a problem. <laughs> it seems charming and funny in the moment, but in reality, they literally couldn't open the gate. <laughs> <laughs> and rather than undoing that or melting it or whatever, they just said hop it and filmed that. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, amazing. Um, this is one of I put this one last on purpose because I just oh, I, so just just very quickly then does that mean it was real snow and shit? So uh, so this apparently was a bit of a problem on production is they went there at the right time of year expecting lots of snow and despite it being absolutely freezing it actually snowed very rarely so there's a huge amount of fake snow in this movie right, um, yeah. there is also a bunch of oh, real but snow it, it did but eventually it was cold enough it was cold enough to close the gate though right okay right exactly yeah yeah so the gate got frozen shut but um, it did snow a couple times apparently but there's there's not much of real snow in the movie sadly um so yeah bit of a shame uh, this last one's pretty interesting. I like this one a lot because I never noticed it. But at the very last time that it is February the 2nd, when Phil kisses Rita, it begins to snow. This is actually something that hasn't happened on any previous day. There was never snow falling. And this is actually foreshadowing that the loop has been broken. Because obviously oh, there's something outside cool. of Phil's control has changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, this nice. actually apparently it's the same thing that happens at the end of It's a Wonderful Life. The, so, the snow signifies George being back in reality in the reality where he does exist. Um, and the same thing is done here. To great effect. It's a great movie. Thank you very much for watching. Goodbye. <laughs> great movie. Great movie. We'd yes. recommend it. Go mm-hmm. watch it. Rewatch it if you haven't seen it in ages. It's mm-hmm. a good time. It's a good time. It's a great time. It's a really good time. And um, and, and any of Harold Ramis's work. I'm, I'm probably going to watch Multiplicity at some point this week. Quite excited. Well, maybe I'm picking it. I'm not. Well, that's, oh yeah. That's, yeah, that is, that is the question. I mean, we... Uh, we very heavily hinted last week what you're choosing, but yeah. So yeah, and I will I will stick to that choice um, because it is, you know, if if is certainly as a kid and now, if you were to say to you what's your favourite film, you'd say Groundhog Day. It only seems right that I pick what I would answer to be my favourite film, Good Burger. No, I'm kidding. Although Good Burger is my Good Burger is my most emotionally favourite film. Um, yeah, I think, for, you well, know, Groundhog Day is weird because I think it's my favorite in the sense of like just technically, it's the one I appreciate is the closest to being a perfect film of the ones we've done so far. There is one other one that has a huge thing that I'm saving. Um, there's one other film on this kind of level of quality that I've got stored up, and Chris as well. A little tease for you for the next set of these. But I've got a movie. I've got a movie so bad. I've got a movie so bad that you're going to actually... I I think you're going to be upset watching it. And I think you're going to be angry I chose it. Fair enough. So that's a little tease because, for the future. Because it's bad quality or... Everything. Everything about right, that movie okay. is bad. But is, is it not fun bad then? Nope. Where you can like... Right, okay. I don't think so. I Look, I loved it as a kid, but I'm wrong. I was wrong. I was horribly, horribly that, wrong. Well, that's that's fine because I've got and remind me near the time in case I forget. But I've got one to throw back at you that also fits this because the circumstances in which I watched the movie are insane. Oh, interesting. Well, we'll come back to that then. Basically, from- Dan, I'll give you a little tease now. Never go on a three-day blind date. <laughs> 
That's what our tease now. <laughs> wow, we've got, we've got. So this is that essentially we're teasing the next but, series. Yes, of Rewind because, reviews because, here because because whilst whilst emotionally series, whilst emotionally I would name Good Burger um, because I cried when I couldn't go to see it and you know other things we'll we'll discuss when I invariably choose Good Burger because um, it will happen. The other film that we've kind of been teetering on and you know what's coming and we we sort of hinted at it. Um, is is what I would say now. If you were to ask me now, you know, if I was meeting someone new and they were to say, what's your favourite film? I would say Back to the Future. I am fascinated by the... Well, I already have an opinion because, fun fact, I've actually already seen the first one. Um, I will re-watch it, as in I saw it last week. I will re-watch it um, before we do the podcast on it. Um, so I kind of already have an opinion to some degree on the mum stuff, which is kind of one of the reasons we've been fearing doing it because we're like, oh god, is that? Is that I'm confident play? it's it fine not? because I think the movie plays yeah. it as weird. I I said this on a previous podcast. You said it might feel icky and weird in a modern context, and I'm thinking it would only feel icky and weird if Marty was into it. But I'm pretty sure from memory, and it is from memory, that Marty is equally grossed out and weirded out by it and awkward with it. And I think that kind yeah, of makes and- it okay. And what they do, what they, in a way, well, we'll talk about it on the podcast, but in a way, actually actually having spoilers for Back to the Future, you, but you should absolutely watch it and don't judge it on this spoiler. Yeah, actually, we, we, next week we don't need to do our usual recommend at the top or not, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure right now we're both saying recommend to Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah, so go watch it and avoid this sentence. Actually having them kiss kind of makes it okay because you get to see her reaction and they yes. play her reaction very cleverly right. yeah, as is, well. Yeah, the fact that she, very famous moment in the movie, but yeah, that's a yeah, great. Yeah, the fact that she inherently knows something's wrong helps as well on the yeah. rewatch. But anyway, Back to the Future is the choice. I'll give you. We'll talk about this more at the time. I'll give you a fun fact. The reason I've already watched it and a testament to how much I love this film is because, as I think's been mentioned on here, uh, in lockdown, me and my family timed watched timed watched harry potter movies so we did we did eight weeks of every saturday at 2 p.m we would watch harry potter um and we would message each other on whatsapp and add comments and stuff um that more than anything that is my only sort of not in that not in that weird uh not in that i don't mean this in a oh it's all blurred into one way because I've been so manically busy at work and we'd be still be doing the podcast and we've done a podcast every week and all that sort of stuff. My only sort of real measure, I did, lockdown doesn't seem that long until I realised that I've watched all eight Harry Potter movies <laughs> like and, and, and go, oh, so it's at least eight weeks then. Like mm-hmm. That's what makes it seem like it's gone on for a while for me. But anyway, um, the so uh after harry potter we decided to go shorter we wanted to keep doing it we're still in lockdown but we decided rather than commit to star wars which was the the next logical choice and nine movies um well you could argue 11 we decided to go for back you to could, the future you could you could argue six if you wanted <laughs> fair, fair. Um, <laughs> the um, you could you slice that any way you prefer let's be honest yeah yeah well, you could argue, you could argue Machete, um, and like seven or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seven. yeah. Um, no, eight Machete. Yeah, because eight. Yeah, includes Attack and um, mm-hmm. Revenge. Um, anyway, so three households watched Back to the Future this weekend. All three households watched copies of the film that I own. <laughs> uh, 
how? Oh, because My... right. So, uh, <laughs> and they, uh, simultaneously, it's worth adding. I'm sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, oh, yeah. So my my parents watched my DVD copy, uh, which was already which was at theirs. Um, so they, I'd I'd had left my copy at theirs. Uh, I left my copy at theirs because I'd recently purchased another copy because they did like a not a full blown fancy box set, um, but a um, they did like a, a a box set which contained some good extras for cheap. It was like Get Back to the Future complete for five ninety nine. Uh, so I had that with me, uh, and then Ronnie, friend of the podcast, also gave me had it on Blu-ray uh, and had copied all burnt all her Blu-rays, so was kind of just selling them. Um, so I purchased it off of her. Um, so my mum and dad had theirs at theirs. My cousin on a walk waved and went, "Do you have Back to the Future? Because I don't have it." And I went, "Oh, actually, I've got a spare copy." <laughs> and kind of did the whole went within to you know I I went put it down, walked away. He went and picked it up. Um, so yeah, I just thought, wow, that's a real testament to my love of this movie. The fact that all three really? households were watching a copy owned by me, and that wasn't even the only copy. Like if my parents had a video player, they could have also watched it on video. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, great. So, yeah. Uh, but good. we will talk that's more good. about that next so, week. So, Back to the Future. So, what we're going to do to end this sort of, in quote marks, series of Rewind Reviews is the Back to the Future trilogy. So, we're going to, this week, next week, we're doing um, Back to the Future Part 1, and then Part 2, and then Part 3 in that order. Then we're going to take a small break before we come back for the next set. Um, yeah, it's, because it's, it seems it's, so it like silly. It's epic way to end this set of, the, of this podcast. Yeah, it was an epic way. It felt like time, but also, unlike Toy Story... Like, it's so... The films are so intertwined, mm. um, which I can't wait. Two's my favourite, and I really don't want to, you know, without launching into a Back to the Future discussion. The fact that, like, because it was something... Um, Jess said something at the end of watching this one, um, and I was like, yeah, no, th- that was put in the, about the last scene. And I was like, it was put in as a joke. One of the things with two was they didn't know what to do with Jennifer because if they if they were planning it, they said they wouldn't have put Jennifer in the car because it, you know, it left them with a massive plot conundrum of what do you do with Jennifer. Um, the fact that two watching this film again, I was so struck by like shit well that comes back and then that links to that and then the fact that it wasn't planned (laughs) is phenomenal um Mm -hmm. they're so intertwined that i don't think it would we concluded when we talked about it after it was clear that i was talking about back to the future last week the conclusion was basically that one of the most interesting things to discuss about back to the future is how entwined it is and putting space between the parts would lessen that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a key part of that trilogy that whilst, you know, we haven't rushed to the Short Circuit sequel or the Toy Story sequel, we really felt that we couldn't do Back to the Future. It's um, funny because Short Circuit doing... 2 is on Netflix now, though, so I'm eyeing that up as a... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good way to end mm-hmm. it. You know, similarly, if we ever did The Hangover, we'd have to take that approach to The Hangover as well. We're never um, doing the hangover. The hangover, no. I quite like the hangover. I saw the hangover at the cinema. I enjoyed it. I watched the first one and I think 10 minutes of the second one. Yeah, the second one's bad. The yeah. third one at least does something different, but it's just not, it's not very funny. <laughs> so the second one's bad and the third one's not very funny. 
But anyway, so that's <laughs> yeah. the hangover. But, um, so but yeah, um, one day back. I'll pick it just to just to spite Dan after his bad choice. Um, no, well, it's that's not. okay because I won't pick the second one as the one after, so you won't be able to have your plan of putting them all together anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, I uh, that's fair. Um, no, I've got a corker for that. But next week is Back to the Future, and then the final two episodes of of this season of Rewind Reviews is the Back to the Future trilogy. Yeah, and then for those of you who are listening and looking for more Steven University, we're probably going to come back to that in the gap, I think. Do a couple, do yeah. some Steven Universities, throw a couple out there. We promise we keep so. going. Still, gonna, still doing that. We took a break, obviously, but um, it's not gone. There's some stuff to talk about, for sure. Pretty excited. Yeah, there's some reflections. There's some There's some going back to old episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few things we can do with that. So, yeah, keep subscribed to the podcast, um, you know, to the YouTube channel. You can get us over on Patreon where you're getting episodes of this a week early. In fact, if you want to go hear our discussion of Back to the Future, you're really excited for it. Yeah, go man. Subscribe to Patreon right now and you can hear us talk Great about point. it. Great um, point. That's uh, patreon.com slash nothing but static, I think. Um, otherwise, it's Twitter at Dan Doolan and at C Billingham with two M's. Uh, there is an at nothing but static without the G Twitter, but we don't post on that anymore. Um, you can follow it in case we start doing it again, though, if you'd like. Uh, where else can you get us? That's it. Mail at nothingbutstatic.co.uk. You can listen to our main Nothing But Static podcast, which is just us talking about TV, where we review new TV. Um, by the time you're hearing this, um, the statics will have happened, which is our big yearly award show. Uh, we're recording this prior to that, so we don't know how it turned out yet, but um, usually it's a really good episode. We usually have a lot of fun doing that. Very excited about it this year. Um, so yeah, that's a, that, those are things you can do. Obviously, yeah. like, subscribe, rate, review, Five stars, all that jazz. It helps. It, also. it greatly helps us out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you so especially that. if you're listening to us on like a podcast platform like uh, iTunes or like Spotify or like you know any if you're listening to this as the RSS feed rather than the YouTube video. Like if I, well, if you're listening to the YouTube video, obviously it helps to comment and like. But if you're, if you're listening to us on iTunes or whatever, just go give us a go give us a roaring review. We'd appreciate that. But otherwise, that's everything for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Chris ends this podcast and I always forget so I'm going to oh, stop yeah. now so Chris can end this podcast that's a great point I'm, I'm Chris Billingham I'm Dan Doolan and this review has been rewound <laughs>